This is Bad Ghost Podcast. Especially because you are doing it all yourself. There's nobody to help you. It's just you figuring it out. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Bad Coach Podcast. My name is Krista. I am an entrepreneur and accountability coach based out of New York City. On the show, I interview entrepreneurs, creatives, business owners, people with all-around amazing ideas to learn a little bit more about what makes them successful, what some of their tips are, what gets them out of bed in the morning, and just some industry-specific knowledge. Uh, So on this episode, you just heard a clip from Chelsea Cole. She is a duck's oven on Instagram and she is a self-published author. She wrote her own cookbook and published it herself on Amazon, which is extremely impressive. She's a food blogger and looking at her website, you gain 10 pounds immediately. She actually focuses on French cooking and all of her food looks phenomenal. If I could cook, I would absolutely go ahead and try to make it. Maybe I will, but I'll probably burn my apartment building down. Um, And she's also just extremely skilled in terms of marketing and strategic positioning. So she talks a little bit about her journey getting from when she started and she was balancing like four jobs at once to where she is right now. And it's so impressive to hear about someone who, you know, just started from being so busy and focusing on this side hustle and just strategically positioning themselves to get to the point where they currently are. So stay tuned for her interview. It's really amazing, really inspiring. And I hope that you draw a few tips from some of the things that she's done to be successful. So before I get into the interview, I do just want to talk a little bit this week about some of my favorite products recently because I feel I've been getting a lot more into, I don't know, like a goopy approach to life, maybe more natural skin um, skincare focused, um, something that I really haven't been, but then I realized that I'm turning 24 in June and I'm getting old. So I know that isn't old to a lot of people. It's just, you know, quarter life crisis here almost. But, you know, I'm trying to focus on my skin a little bit more. So one of the things that I've really been loving is my jade roller. So jade roller, it's this little stick. And on both ends, there's just a little roller piece. And what you do is I love putting it in the fridge so it's nice and cold. And what I'll do is I keep it on my desk so I remember to use it. Otherwise, it's such a chore. Keep it somewhere where you're going to use it. So if it's on your bedside table while you're laying in bed reading or watching Netflix, you can just roll your face. And you want to do outward motions. So you're going to start from the inside of your face and roll out. And what it does is helps with lymphatic drainage and helps reduce puffiness in your face. So if you ever feel like you wake up and you have maybe too much wine or you eat way too many carbs, you have carb face, you can roll your face out with your jade roller and it's going to help bring down that puffiness. And I just find it to be kind of therapeutic and calming to roll out your face and just have this ritual. So it's a really nice thing to add into your nighttime routine or if you're sitting at your desk doing work amazing time to bring out the jade roller my next favorite product and i mentioned this before on a podcast is my saint john's wort so saint john's wort is a natural mood enhancer and you do have to come to your doctor before you start taking this especially if you're on other medications as it can interact with other medications make birth control less um less efficient and work a little bit less but what it does is i find it really helps my mood and as someone who struggles from anxiety and sometimes have random anxiety attacks i find that it really helps really helps reduce the occurrences of that and makes me feel a lot better so right now i'm just using nature's bounty and i take three of them a day which is the recommended dosage and i love it i really think it makes a difference even if it's a placebo effect i love it 
The next thing that I do, and this factors in with jade rolling, is icing my face. So again, when I feel puffy, maybe I have some acne, like PMS face, and I want to get it to tone down a little bit, I'll just grab an ice cube, wrap it in a paper towel, and just roll it around my face. And it really helps bring down the puffiness. Your face will feel instantly tighter because what that ice is going to do is contract your skin and actually make it tighter um so it definitely really helps to bring down any puffiness if you wake up in the morning maybe you have somewhere to go do it under your eyes a little bit don't give yourself you know ice burn or you know freeze your face off but be careful with it the next thing that i've been using pretty frequently is my glam glow peel mask and if you were ever a kid in art class that put glue all over your hands and peeled it off that's the sensation that this gives you. Um, so the Glam Goat Peel Mask, it's the Gravity Mud, and it's this beautiful purple, and it's just so fun. You put it on, it takes about 15 minutes to dry, and then you can just peel it off all in one thing. It does not hurt your skin to peel off, so it's not one of those crazy ones that you see on Instagram that people are like screaming, peeling it off, and I find it gives me this instant glow after and makes my skin feel a little tighter, a little firmer. Again, going back to the whole I'm scared of aging thing. Now, the next thing that I started using is self-tanner, and I'm not going to lie, I used to be someone who would go to the tanning beds and fake bake, and it's so bad for your skin. Again, why I'm scared of aging, and I've stopped doing that, and self-tanner, I was always kind of confused about how to put it on, how it worked, but I finally figured it out. Um, so, Isle of Paradise, uh, there's a newer brand, they're vegan, um, cruelty-free, and it smells really good. So if you use self-tanner, you know that it stinks. You can get this weird chemical odor. It's just this weird self-tanner smell. So Isle of Paradise doesn't have that. So I bought the mousse for my body and I just use a mitt. Now they don't have a specific mitt, but you can buy like the Saint-Tropez one. And you rub it all over your body. Make sure you shave in the shower and then exfoliate. So I use my dry brush before I get in the shower. Or you can use the body scrub. I would recommend using maybe Ocean Salt from Lush. It's a really great exfoliator. And then on your face, again, make sure you're exfoliating. I bought the Sephora Exfoliating Wipes. Then you want to use moisturizer on your dry spots. So if your face gets dry, put on moisturizer. Because what Tanner is going to do is actually soak into any spots that you have on your face. So if you have any acne or dry patches, it'll soak in. It's not going to look cute. You're going to have weird dots all over your face. And same on your body. So on your knuckles, on your elbows, on your feet. Then you want to go in with your self-tanner. So on your body, your mitt, you want to do all round motions. And if you see any weird spots, just try to rub them in. And then on your face, what I like to do is I actually bought the oil, so it's the oil drop. So I mix it in with my night cream, and then I applied it to my face. Again, making sure to blend, otherwise you're going to look like Tony the Tiger. And then in the morning, so if you sleep in it, you want to keep it on for about six to eight hours. You wash it off, and they have this beautiful tan, and it'll last for a few days. I do run, so I get pretty sweaty, so apply it once, so you can apply it twice a week. But it really gave me this beautiful dark color, and I didn't have to go out in the sun and ruin my skin. The next item that I've been obsessed with is my sage. So every night I've been burning a little bit of sage in my room and it kind of smells like weed. So my neighbors probably think I'm a pothead, but I, I don't smoke. Um, but it just gives me this nice therapeutic feel in my room. It's supposed to kill off bad energy. And I put on my essential oils and my Himalayan pink salt lamp. And it's just like a little spa feeling in my room. And it's this ritual that reminds me it's getting time to be bedtime. I have my PJs on. I just got some silk sheets from Amazon for my bed. So it's this really 
calm, soothing space for me to wind down at night. If you're someone like me who suffers from insomnia because you have way too much caffeine, it's nice to have these little things in your room to really help you calm down for the night. And the last thing that I want to mention, I've talked about this in my podcast before I actually had the woman who did it on my podcast, Crystal. Um, so I got my eyebrows re-microbladed and it is such a life changer. People ask me questions about it all the time about how the process is and does it hurt and how long does it last and just what is it. Microblading is basically a surface level tattoo on your face and you're not using a tattoo gun and you're not going to feel it so you start off by numbing your face let that sit for a while and before that you're drawing out the exact shape that you want on your face with your artist to make sure that it's going to look good you're not going to look like Frida Kahlo fucking crazy Um, so you map it out on your face and then you go in with this handheld needle tool so the needle tool has about 10 needles on it and what the artist will do is make tiny incisions in your face so it's just like a ton of tiny paper cuts on your face and they go back over it with the dye so the dye sits in it and they wipe it off and it's just a series of incisions like that until you're done then what you do for about two days you don't want to get your brows wet at all and then after that once per day just like you would do with a normal tattoo you're going to go over it with an unscented, really gentle cleanser once per day to make sure it's clean, no bacteria is getting in there. And then after about 10 days, you're going to see your brows, probably the scabs are going to come off. They're going to scab up a little bit and you'll see it. And then within about a month, they're going to come out and be fuller color because with your skin, there's different skin cycles. So your skin is going to regenerate like every couple weeks. So every layer of skin is going to kind of reveal like a different layer of microblading. Now it's not permanent. It'll last up to two years. It really depends on your skin type and how quickly your skin falls off. Now this has been a complete game changer for me in all areas of my life. I wake up in the morning and I don't even put any makeup on. I go to the gym and I'm not sweating an eyebrow off and it just changes the shape of your face and your eyebrows completely change the way your face looks. And it just will completely bump your confidence level up a million, a million times. So if you're someone who was born with genetically really light eyebrows or really sparse, look into it. Or if you have questions, I'm definitely open to chat about my experience, maybe a little bit more in depth with you. Thanks so much for tuning in. And now here is my interview with Chelsea. Talking about career change, I feel like you've done a million things and even now you're balancing like 50 things at once. Yeah. How has that been? Has it been like a like changing from thing to thing? Has it just come to you like you knew what you wanted to do or was it just a series of like you found something and then you weren't super happy and then you're like, I'm going to try something else? Luckily for me, other than like my first real career change, everything just kind of flowed into each other. So my I, my bachelor's degree is in sociology and I thought I wanted to eventually get my master's to do elementary ed. And, uh, I quick, I was working for the university of Oregon brain development lab. I was their behavioral lab manager right out of college. And we worked with, um, kids in Head Start programs, which is, um, a federally funded preschool program. And, um, as much as I loved the work and I truly did love working with kids, I didn't love working in the public sector. I really wanted to transition to the private sector. And at that point I had been food blogging for a few years and I was like, well, Hey, if I love food, that must mean I want to work in a restaurant, (laughs) Um, which was 
very silly of me. I did. Uh, so what happened was my husband got a job in our, um, we were not married at the time. We were, um, he was my boyfriend at the time, uh, but he got a job in our hometown of Portland. So we decided to move back um, to Portland together. And I was like, okay, I'm going to get a job in a restaurant and I'm going to explore this career opportunity um, and see what it's like. And so I did. And I was hired with no restaurant experience as an assistant manager um, at a local restaurant here. And it was a great position. I was salaried um, with really good benefits, which in the restaurant industry is really rare. Um, but I also worked 50 to 60 hours a week. Every single week, I worked two doubles, which is either a 12 or 13 hour day. And that was twice a week. Um, I worked opposite schedule from my boyfriend and never saw him, rarely saw friends and family and became miserable pretty quick. And working in a restaurant does not have anything to do with food, really. (laughs) Um, especially if you work in front of house like I did. Uh, so I actually ended up leaving for, um, I, when I left that job, it was because my husband decided to uh, get his master's degree at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. And I was like, well, I want to come. <laughs> um, so I went with him and freelanced for a year and just kind of worked on my blog for that entire year, uh, which was so incredible. And so I did freelance copywriting. And then I also worked on my blog. This was in 2014. And that's when I kind of started to realize the elements of my blog that I loved so much were marketing. I loved the cooking and the photography, but I also loved things like building my email list, um, playing with different things. You know, Facebook was was very big at the time and Instagram wasn't super, super big. It was big, but not like it is today. Um, but like playing around with Facebook marketing, um, Instagram a little bit here and there. And I started to realize a little bit that was marketing. So when I got back, the restaurant hired me back, which was so awesome of them. And uh, they hired me back as their restaurant support specialist, which I was essentially like a special projects person. And some of that included marketing projects, which was really cool. Um, But it wasn't enough. I wanted to get into marketing. So I looked for a job in digital marketing. That was specifically what I wanted to do and found um, found a job at a startup here in Portland. And it was perfect because they hadn't really developed a digital marketing program yet. They hadn't had anyone in that role. Um, they only had like a few hundred uh, Instagram followers, barely anything on Facebook. And so I got to develop their digital marketing program from the ground up. Um, so I got a crash course, which was really exciting. Uh, and then I kind of got to do it myself and I just learned on the job. Um, so I did that for about two years and then the restaurant that I worked for previously was like, Hey, we have a marketing position open. Would you be interested? And it was part-time. And at first I was like, nah, I'm not going part-time. That's terrifying. Like no benefits, no salary. Um, and then I thought about it and I had been thinking about trying to freelance full-time for a while. Um, but that scared the crap out of me because uh, it's not very certain. The work isn't very certain. The money isn't very certain. And I was like, this might be a good bridge. Uh, so I ended up taking it. And that's where I'm at now. Wow. And working 50 to 60 hour weeks doing that and food blogging at the same time, how are you <laughs> prioritizing everything and like getting everything done and fitting in the energy, working long weeks? I think it can be so draining when you you get home and you just want to like lay down and like watch TV and relax. That was such a struggle. And frankly, during that time, I would take like a few months off here and there. And then um, I would always find though, like once I got back to blogging, it just the um, creative elements just 
fulfill me. And so when I would take the time to actually dedicate, you know, a weekend or two or every month um, to developing content and getting that content scheduled out and all that stuff, uh, I would find that I was feeling like so much happier because I had that creative outlet. And so it was really just a matter of taking the time. And then the other thing that I came to realize is I've always been a fair, a pretty like ambitious person and I'm excited to take on work and to do new things. Um, but I am not, uh, one, I, I wasn't ambitious in my career. And what I mean by that is that I always wanted to develop my own things. <laughs> um, and so I hated using up so much of my energy and time, uh, for somebody else when I could be doing it for me. <laughs> um, and so I've, I've kind of learned to be okay with the fact that, um, you know, I don't, I'm not, um, uh, on this uh, upward uh, trajectory in a traditional career sense, but I'm building something of my own. Um, and ever since I've kind of just learned to be to be okay with that, uh, it's been a lot easier for me to, because now my job is relatively easy. It's part-time. Um, it doesn't take a ton of my creative energy or my time for that matter. Um, and I can save a lot of that for the other work that I do. Mm-hmm. And starting your blog, you know, you you started your food blog quite a while ago. How did you get it off the ground? I think that's a huge barrier to success for people is that they they see this as this big struggle and like, how am I going to build all this content, make it so that it's things that people want to engage with and actually read, you know, that that fear, oh my God, no one's going to read this or no one's going to like it. How did you get started? What did you start with? Well, frankly, it was a way it was different and in a lot of ways easier when I started. Um, when I started my food blog, it was 2010, uh, which feels like a whole other universe in the, in the digital world. Um, and at that time, uh, I started my blog on Blogspot, which uh, oh a boy. lot of people don't, I know, right? Like a lot of people don't even know what that is anymore. Um, and I would be so excited if I got like 30 views in a day. <laughs> knowing that like five of them were probably my mom um but <laughs> or I, yourself <laughs> yeah exactly or myself and um at that time though it it was different in that like I told a friend in school because I was in college when I started um that I had started a food blog and she's like and she was just like so shocked that I was trying to become like a real food blogger because at that time it was like the pioneer woman and pinch of yum. And that's pretty much it. There was not a lot out there. Um, so in that way, it was a little bit easier to stand out. People just didn't know how to blog as well then, but I was also taking like iPhone photos and my recipes were horribly formatted. Um, and it really was just a matter of persistence. Be okay with the fact that you're not going to start with where you ultimately want to be and you're always like my food photography develops every day every single time I do a shoot now and I've been doing it for eight years um and and also putting you know I think people are starting to realize this more um back then it was it was more about quantity than quality uh but now it's certainly quality over quantity and this isn't to say like at that time um blogging was frankly easier there wasn't all these other things that you had to do um in conjunction with a blog post, all the social, the email um, marketing, all that, there was just less of all of that. Uh, So I could do three blog posts a week. um, And I, and that was totally doable at that time. Now I do one. (laughs) Um, And I make sure that it's a really excellent recipe with really great food photography. A lot of, I make a video with almost every post that I do, um, all of that stuff. So really focusing on creating really quality content, your users will recognize it and Google will recognize it too, which is an important thing to remember. 
Yeah, I know Gary Vee. I'm a huge fan of Gary Vee. I don't know if you listen to him at all. Mm-hmm. He talks a lot about spreading your content onto multiple platforms. So you're putting it on your blog, you're getting it on your Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, everywhere. What are your tips for SEO and getting people to see it? Yeah, that is tricky. Um, I think, honestly, though, I think people totally overthink it. If you, again, create really high quality content um, and you do want to pay attention to things like, for example, for WordPress, there's really simple things you can do now. Like I use this plugin called Yoast that almost all WordPress bloggers use that kind of checks your um, uh, the quality of SEO in your blog post um, before you press it live. So things like that. Doing a little bit of keyword research is always good. Um, So before when I'm like kind of mapping out what I'm going to do for the next few months, it's always going to be something I want to do and that I'm excited to do. But if I can fit in something that people are searching for around that time, that's even better. Um, So just being aware of those types of things. And frankly, so like my traffic sources over well over half is organic um so that just comes straight from google people searching for for uh something that my blog can provide for them um and so i'm i am careful about how i rank here and there however another i think last time i checked it was about 30 percent comes from pinterest and then from there it's like a teeny bit facebook and even teenier bit instagram and then just other sources where i've been linked to throughout the internet um so frankly you're not going to get a ton of traffic from your social channels unless you have a massive following but i think too like i very rarely click over from Instagram. I think that's how most people behave too. I think we swipe up in stories and that's kind of it. Um, in some ways, Facebook and Twitter are more powerful tools for getting driving traffic to your blog because you're more likely to click over from Facebook and Twitter. Um, but yeah, SEO is, is definitely important, but don't overthink it. You don't need to pay hundreds of, hundreds of dollars for a course. Some basic Googling is all you need, even YouTube videos, um, and, just, and just create quality content. And that's what Google is ultimately looking for. Yeah, spending more time on it. I think Instagram's this, you know, you want to have an Instagram page because it acts as your portfolio. And I mean, your Instagram looks great. Make sure everyone goes and follows you. But um, I think it's, you know, you're you're scrolling through, you're not necessarily intrigued versus, you know, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, it's more networking. Those are people that you know that are going to actually click over and look at it. Um, you know, all the other articles there where you're clicking, it's that, you know, the black hole you're going to click. Um, so I definitely think, yeah, that definitely transcribes more to getting people over to your website. But in terms of Instagram, how do you get people to engage with your your photos or get the best photos possible on there? Yeah. So I put a lot of thought into my Instagram and this has especially been And like you said, my Instagram serves a different purpose than my blog. It is my portfolio. And so that's how um, really I get brands who want to work with me um, and how I just get people interested in me generally. Um, You know, when I did, uh, and we'll talk about this more later, but when I did launch my cookbook, a ton of the people who bought it were my Instagram followers because they've been following and supporting me for so long. Um, But the way my big focus, so about a year ago, I, uh, if you go to my Instagram now, it's um, a duck's oven, by the way. <laughs> and if you go over there now, it's all pinks and yellows and it's really bright and fun and cheery. And I pivoted to that color palette only about a year ago. And 
part of the reason being just to make myself stand out from the other food bloggers. Like I said, when I started, there started food blogging, there were very few food bloggers. Now there are tons of oh, many. bloggers so many and our photos frankly like you know there are some there are some food photographers that truly do stand out from the rest but for the most part all of our photos look very similar and i was like okay how can i make my photos different and um so i switched over to this color palette and i started doing things like um i make a lot of stop motion videos that are just like quick, fun little things, and they don't take very much effort from me um, to create, but people really like them. Um, and I get a lot of messages like, how do you do this? And um, I get really good engagement and good feedback on stuff like that. Um, and I just kind of pay attention to what um, what pe what I feel like people are looking for from me. I do a lot of polls and engagement in my stories to kind of um, get a feel for what people would like to see more of. I think we kind of all do that. But I think just really making sure that the images that you post are captivating. And then this is kind of controversial in the world of Instagram, but I also only post original content. So stuff I've shot, which is more crucial for somebody like me. Um, but I think it's kind of important because again, my Instagram feed is a portfolio and I really want to demonstrate to people that I can create this fun, exciting and engaging content. Yeah, like that visually stunning thing, you know, it's that, that, that thing you want to actually look at. And so many people can repost, 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 but it's something you've seen before and it's not going to give you that fresh view. And like you said, your page is so unique compared to other other food bloggers. Like I'll see just that same marble plate and white dish with the, mm -hmm. with the greens in the middle on everyone else's and you really do have this bright color palette. It's more playful. I feel like it's something that you want to look at all those pinks and the bright colors on your page. You're going to keep scrolling and scrolling. And I think bright colors make you hunger. I think that's like a psychological thing. So I'm like going to totally. make some mac and cheese after this. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep. Totally. <laughs> Yeah. And tell me more about your cookbook. So you wrote this cookbook yourself, developed it, self-published. Talk about the process or even just the thought process in wanting to start writing the cookbook or how it kind of came into your mind. Yeah. Uh, it was <laughs> one of my biggest learning experiences to date. Like I tend to be the type of person who creates creates projects for herself, um, but nothing has been like this book was. And I, I think it's every food blogger's dream to eventually write a cookbook. And um, probably like a year and a half, two years ago, probably two years ago now, I guess, I started learning more about self-publishing. I found out that one of my favorite cookbook authors, Melissa Juan, who wrote the Well-Fed books, she um, self-published and I found that out and I was like, huh, that's interesting. I didn't, I just didn't really know that was an option or what that meant. Um, so I just cold emailed her. She has a massive following. I did not think she'd give me the time of day. And she responded like super helpful, long, like full of resources response about the self-publishing process. And it was so helpful. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. I think I want to do this. And, and kind of the way she explained this to me, and I've actually, since I've launched my cookbook, I've befriended another cookbook author whose name is Diane Morgan. She's written 18 books. She's amazing. Um, but we've spent a lot of time talking about, and I've just been thinking about the, the benefits between traditional publishing and self-publishing. With traditional publishing, you... Um, uh, get in advance. So you have money up front to help you make this book. So that's one of the benefits and you get massive distribution. Uh, so that's the other kind of big benefit with self or with traditional publishing. 
with self-publishing, the benefits are that you have all the creative control. Um, you get to keep all of the royalties. So my royalties are way bigger than what um, I would have done with traditional publishing. And you're kind of on your own timeline. You get to do the things the way that you want to do them. And so I was like, okay, I'm just going to do this. So about a year ago now, um, last March, I decided I'm going to, I'm going to do this. I'm going to self-publish my own book. At the time we were finishing up building our house. <laughs> um, so I was a little busy with that, but I like started mapping out the recipes and the concept. And I knew um, I had kind of had this idea in my head for a while that I wanted to self-publish, but I was like, if I'm going to do this, I need a topic uh, that sets me apart. And so um, about also about two years ago, I really fell in love with sous vide cooking, which is a cooking method that involves um, vacuum sealing your food and putting it into a water bath for really precise cooking. It's really well known for steak. That's a whole other rabbit hole. Um, but it is niche but it's a growing niche. Like if you look on Google Trends, it's skyrocketed over the past five years. And so I tell people it's like the next instant pot. Um, and I was like, this is going to be my topic because there's so few sous vide cookbooks and the ones that do exist, it's kind of thought of as like a guy gadget. They're all hyper masculine cookbooks. And I went the full pink, yellow, happy color palette with my book too. So it's this hyper feminine sous vide cookbook. Um, and I did it all myself other than, you know, I had a ton of people to help me test all the recipes and I hired somebody to edit the book. Um, and then my friend who's a graphic designer created a template for me and designed the cover. But other than that, it was all me. And I self-published at the end of November um, and during Black Friday weekend. And going, I know you mentioned traditional publishing, the traditional publishing route, going self-publishing versus that. What would have been some of the steps that would have gone into that or some of the differences that would have been in the whole process? Yeah. So with traditional publishing, uh, oftentimes you need to get a literary agent. So it's somebody who will talk to publishers and has a relationship with pub with publishers on your behalf. Um, and so that's a process in and of itself. That's another person that you have to pay. So they're going to get a portion of your advance is how that works. Um, and you have to find a publisher who's excited about your topic in the way you want to write your book, or they're going to tell you that they want to tweak maybe the topic or your book. Um, and they're going to dictate the timeline, um, the topic, all of that stuff. However, the big benefit with them, of course, is that they have all these resources that you don't. So namely editing resources. You are still responsible for all the recipe testing from a cookbook perspective. And now a lot of times um, the photography is the responsibility of the author, whether, if you, whether you hire that out or do it yourself. And if you hire it out, you, it comes out of your own pocket. So uh, it's not cheap to, to, to uh, go the traditional route of publishing either, um, which was an interesting learning experience for me. And whereas with self-publishing, I did do everything myself, but I would have done so much of that myself anyways. They also do lend a little bit of help in the marketing process, but I was talking to other cookbook authors and now they rely so much on you and your social media presence, your email list, all these things that you've built to do the marketing anyways, that it's really not all that different from just doing it all yourself. Yeah, because print is so, you know, it's, it's a dying breed. I feel like print is, people are so much more online that it's, 
it's kind of hard to market in the traditional realm where people are just going to Barnes and Noble all the time. You know, they're on they're on Instagram and reading their audiobooks now. Yeah. Um, so I think it is, you know, it is a lot more hard. And then I feel like you are getting this gratification. Like I did this all myself. But during that process, did you feel like you struggled with like self-doubt or you know, a little bit scared to get the process going or any like stumbles or obstacles along the way? Oh, for sure. Um, one that was just like, I mean, there's, you're plagued with self-doubt. But of course, the big thing is like, will anybody take me seriously? Are they just going to think I'm silly for doing this? Like those kinds of things. Um, you just, you just can't help but feel. Thank goodness for me. I have a very supportive and encouraging family. Uh, my mom and my husband and my dad and my in-laws are like my biggest cheerleaders, which is awesome. Um, but you, you think that constantly, like, what are people going to think about me? They must, they, like, are they going to think I am so self-important that I'm worthy of writing this book? Um, and so you think, you think that a lot, but ultimately you just have to stop thinking about it and keep going. And then just from, uh, like, uh, external forces, my mom and I, so I moved out of my, my apartment, uh, was in a building that my dad owns and it's in the historic uh, Mississippi district here in Portland, which is a really fun area. And my mom and I, when I moved out, decided to turn it into an Airbnb. Um, and this was in October and I launched my book in November and getting an Airbnb up and running is a lot of work. And so that was like three weeks of just work on that. And that totally interrupted my book writing process. Um, and I ended up uh, finishing the book about two weeks later than I wanted to in part because of that. And so you're going to have roadblocks like this. I had set myself the deadline of Black Friday weekend for obvious reasons. <laughs> I figured people would be buying immersion circulators, which is what you need to do sous vide cooking over Black Friday. And my book needed to be available for them to buy too. So that was really, really important to me. Um, but yeah, you're you're faced with tons of stuff like that. I At the very end, I had massive hiccups, which gave me insane stress um, with the process of uploading the book to Amazon. Uh, my book is self-published through CreateSpace, which is uh, Amazon self-publishing platform. And you know, you it's it's regarded as a very easy and very quick process. Not so. <laughs> if you self-publish a book, give yourself plenty of time to get that uploaded. If there is an error with your manuscript, you only get a vague like form response that there's an error. So you don't actually know what the specific thing is that's wrong. And so I kept getting this error over and over that the margins were off and I couldn't for the life of me figure out where the margins were off. Um, and really what ended up happening is I just resubmitted it enough times that somebody accepted it. <laughs> yeah, but I like was having stress dreams, like not sleeping. I dream dreamt in the middle of the night that I got like a go um, email, like from Amazon saying my book was live. And I was about <laughs> to send my pre-drafted email, letting everybody know it had launched. Uh, and thank God I actually went back and checked my email again because I had not gotten that email from Amazon. <laughs> Um, and so there's all, you know, all those kinds of things, especially because you are doing it all yourself. There's nobody to help you. It's just you figuring it out. It's like that breath of fresh air when you finally get that that green light email, like it's uploaded, it's it's live. And how did that process go? So you you upload your manuscript to to Amazon, they they publish it for you. Uh, what else is involved in that process? The great thing about that platform is that's it. So you set the price. Um, unfortunately, one thing I did learn is you don't have as much control over the price um, as I thought that you did. You have to have a minimum price 
um, in order for it to be distributed in a certain way. And so mine is unfortunately priced a little higher than I wanted to um, price it, but only by a few dollars. And I'm like, it's fine. It's not going to be the end of the world, but that was an interesting learning process. But the great thing about them is I don't have like a stockpile of books in my house. It's print on demand. So somebody places an order and then Amazon prints the book. So there's no big, scary inventory that I have to sell through, um, which is amazing. So they handle all of that. I order a few books for myself um, to have on hand for like um, book signings that I do locally, or if anybody wants a signed copy that they want to buy directly from me or giveaways or whatever. Um, but for the most part, it's all through Amazon. And then they just send you a royalty check every every month after the first three months. That's amazing for somebody who's just starting off because it's like you're not you're not going to be sitting on this pile of books, this book thrown, stressing out, worrying like, am I going to sell these or not? Like it it takes that stress away. I love that. And then it's live. It's on Amazon. How are you marketing it and working on that PR to promote your book? Yeah, that was um, also a really good learning experience from for me because I know how to do digital marketing. Um, I know how to do social media marketing really well, but PR is a slightly different animal. Uh, so I got like kind of a fake version of my book about a week before the launch. So I had, um, uploaded it to Amazon, but had a bunch of edits, but I ordered a copy at that time because the cover was going to look the same. And then I used that to do a big photo shoot. So I'd have lots of assets ready for launch. Uh, I wrote a sequence of emails, got that all ready to go, you know, did, um, got tons of social media posts ready to go in advance. Um, and then just kind of went for it from that perspective and really, really consistently posted on social media. And then I shared like one or what did I do? Like three recipes from the book over the course of a month and a half or so on my blog, you know, you don't want to give too much away, but just like little tastes for people. And then people who do just end up on my blog, um, I would, you know, direct them to go buy my book. Lucky for me, I had started um, posting about sous vide on my blog uh, about a year before the book launch. And one of the third highest drivers of traffic to my blog is a sous vide recipe. Um, Or I'm sorry, the third highest uh, earner of traffic. And so at the top of that post, I wrote a little blurb like, hey, did you know I have a book? Go buy it. <laughs> so little things like that throughout. And then I also um, got involved in the food community here in Portland. I'm, I'm lucky enough to live in a massive food city. And there's this great group called the Portland Culinary Alliance here. And right around the time of my book launch, it was like a week before I went to this event um, called Behind the Brand. And it was a really great networking opportunity for me because I connected with a woman who I had known in PR um, a few years prior, but hadn't seen or talked to since then. And I reconnected with her. And that's also where I met um, that the cookbook author, Diane Morgan, I mentioned earlier. And they have both been um, so helpful so generous of their time and their resources for me. And so um, Lisa, the woman in PR, she and I got coffee and she just kind of gave me a crash course in pitching myself and uh, PR more generally. And so thanks to her, I reached out to a bunch of local TV stations and said, hey, can I come on TV with you? And they said yes. <laughs> um, and I reached out to some of my favorite podcasts and got interviews there to help promote the book. Um, TV was, I mean, TV, the TV and the podcasts were both so excited. Like you can see um, my uh, book sales would like double the day after I did one of those events. 
Um, so it was, it was clear that that was good for me. And then I also did a bunch of holiday events here locally. It was really great timing for that. So there's all like support local creators and, um, you can get a booth at a bunch of really fun, like markets. And so I did a bunch of that and that was all great for really getting involved in this community. And now people think of me for certain things. Like I'm about to start teaching some sous vide cooking classes here, um, and things like that. And it's, it's, uh, it's been so helpful with that. I was actually supposed to be on TV in Seattle, which is super exciting because they have a great big market um, a couple weeks ago, but they had such a bad snowstorm that they had to cancel the entire morning show. (laughs) Um, So I'm going on next month. Um, But yeah, I've learned about how to kind of get on local TV stations and what they're looking for and things like that. Yeah, you're like a master of strategic positioning. I think with, you know, you're starting your blog at the right time. You got this great timing. You you got into, you know, the type of cooking that you do at the right time, launching, getting yourself in the media at the right time. So what are your tips for people who are looking to start something, how to position themselves, how to get in the right place at the right time? Yeah. Um So this is something um, I always tell people, but one of the best pieces of advice I've ever gotten is from my mother-in-law back when I was, my husband and I have been dating since we were 16. Um, And so this was back in high school, but uh, it was let them tell you no. So never assume that you aren't good enough for something or that you aren't qualified for something or that they're too busy or anything like that. Just give it a shot. And if they can't do it, great, but let them be the one to turn you down. Don't turn yourself down before you even had a shot. And that advice has been so helpful in literally everything I've done throughout my career. Um, so I think, I think uh, not being afraid to just shoot your shot and then also making sure when you are reaching out to these people, make your emails short and sweet and be really clear about how you can benefit them. Um, and just how you're going to make their lives easy, how you're going to provide this awesome content for them. Um, just make it short, sweet, to the point, benefits clear. Yeah, like provide value to people or they're just going to ignore you. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And you balance so many things at the same time. You're doing you know, a million and one things. How are you prioritizing and how would you say – you know, what you do is different from, you know, one person having this one main focus they're focusing on all the time versus having multiple focuses and different endeavors at the same time. Like, how do you think that benefits you? Yeah, it is honestly tricky. And it's something that I'm still, especially now, because I, I am taking on a little bit more, I'm still figuring out how to balance. But ultimately, I always have to just kind of look up and, and remember what my, you know, guiding light is at that time, whatever my biggest goal is at that time. So 2018, it was really, this book is going to happen. And so just like, that was my primary focus, especially for the back half of 2018. Now I'm at a point where I'm uh, a little more spread out. So I have, I work, I work about 30 hours a week. Um, And then I also have my blog. (laughs) And then I also have uh, several marketing clients, freelance marketing clients on the side. Um, I'm promoting my book and one of my friends, the graphic designer who helped me with my book, she and I are working on a course for food bloggers about self-publishing their own book. And so it is a careful balance, but it's really just being strategic with your time. So it's usually like my, my weekends are my 
my playground of time that's from all my projects on the side. So it's like, this is going to be a client weekend. Like I am working on all of my client photo shoots, all of my client copywriting, like that is all happening this weekend. And then the next weekend, it's like, this is a blog weekend. Here's what I'm doing for that. And then I usually fit in other stuff around the perimeters of my day. So um, today, like before I left for work this morning, I did a quick photo shoot for two quick, two photo shoots for my blog. And then tonight I'm going to be editing all of that. So today is kind of like a blog day, but it's a little more loosey goosey. And so that's kind of how I organize my time. And then I live and breathe by Asana, <laughs> which is just a, t- a really great task management tool, but I couldn't function without something there to kind of help me remember all this. But like the course, for example, that's going to be a massive project. It's very, very important to me that this is an incredibly good uh, and and detail-rich course. Like I want people to be able to create a cookbook by the time that they finish this course. Um, And that is something I need to dedicate. That needs to be like my cookbook level of focus. So I'm working on carving out the space for that to happen. My dream in the next like month or so is to book a hotel room (laughs) and just go hole up in that and not leave until it's like at least half done. Uh, But we'll see if that happens or not. (laughs) You have to lock yourself in a room to get it done. Mm -hmm. No, that's great. And how do you take time to practice self-care in between everything and take that time for yourself? Do you like prioritize time that you take away from work or kind of like a meditation time for yourself? Yeah. A lot of times um, I kind of just like, I'm not somebody who lives and breathes by a calendar, uh, like a digital calendar or anything like that. It's more just like a mental calendar, like Saturday afternoon, I am doing this or whatever it might be. And generally, even though I do a lot of work on the weekends, uh, I leave the evenings free. So usually I'm done by five or so. Um, And then that's time with my husband. So usually it's like Netflix, uh, you know, ordering sushi, something like that. And we just chill out or Um, Another way I've lately been carving out more time, very intentionally been carving out more time for myself is I am, I'm not to toot my own horn, but I am a great cook. I love to cook. Like that is something I've got in the bag, Um, but I'm not a great baker. It's not something I do a lot and I'm trying to learn how to be a better baker. Um, And so I'm carving out time to devote to these like more intense baking projects. And it's not something for my blog necessarily or anything like that. Um, But being in the kitchen is truly meditative for me. It's so relaxing. Like I make dinner for my husband and I almost every day. And people are like, how do you do that? And I'm like, honestly, for me, it's a great way to unwind after a work day Um, because it is a little bit creative. But at this point, it's also just it's so habitual that I can kind of do it without thinking. Um, and so, so I cook dinner for us every single day without question. And for me, that is a form of self-care, both because the food is ultimately better for me and makes me feel better. Um, and I have that time for myself. And then I also force is sometimes I will try to talk myself out of exercising because I will want to work on a project or something. Um, but I just force myself to do it. So I do orange theory a couple times a week and I walk on my treadmill. I try to walk on my treadmill for a half hour every morning if I'm not doing orange theory and I'll just walk and listen to a podcast or watch YouTube videos or a lot of times um, a lot of people talk about morning pages I kind of do my own version where I just open a Google Doc on my phone and we'll dump all the things that I'm kind of stressed about or thinking about um, for the day into that Google Doc and that's very uh, therapeutic for me in a really really nice way to start the day. 
Yeah, get the thoughts out of your head. And I think it's so funny. You say you're you're bad at baking. I am the worst cook. I burn everything. It just comes out so bad. But I love baking. I'm so good at baking. I have like a like a real KitchenAid mixer. Like mm-hmm. I love to bake, but I, I'm so bad at cooking. It seems it's just like people have like one skill or the other. Um, cause baking is more technical. Yeah. That's and why I like I it. Think, <laughs> yeah. And I think for me, I usually am just like, I have, you know, these five ingredients, what can I do with them? Let's do this. And so baking, I don't like the restraints. Um, but it also is such a skill. And so I'm trying to get better. <laughs> like a science. I think, I think that's why I like it. It's kind of science. Like you have to get the exact amount of the ingredient in there comes out and it's just amazing versus cooking is so, you know, when putting together a dish with just these vague ingredients, like the the show was Top Chef Chopped. I mean, they have all the ingredients, the weird things they've thrown into a pan. Like, I'd be so terrible at that because I couldn't, I, I don't think I could, I could make anything out of that whatsoever. <laughs> totally. And do you have any upcoming projects or launches or anything that you want to share? Yeah. So stay tuned for that course. I think our goal is to have it done um, probably in May. We actually have a big meeting about it on Friday. Um, but that is going to be really cool. We're essentially just taking everything we learned about the, pro- um, the process of self-publishing a cookbook and putting it into, it's actually going to be multiple courses because there, there's so much information. I was writing the outline initially and I'm like, people are going to look at this and cry. <laughs> um, so we're breaking it up into three courses that are going to kind of be creating the book is one. So like photography, recipe development, finding recipe testers, form, like all that stuff is going to be one course. Um, Designing the book is going to be another. And uh, Carly, my partner on this project, is actually going to be creating cookbook templates for people, which I think is going to be really cool. And then um, we're going to have a whole course on marketing and PR for your cookbook too. So I think that that is going to be awesome. And then, yeah, just my book generally. My book's called Everyday Sous Vide. And if you're interested in sous vide cooking, that is available on Amazon. So how will people be able to sign up for the course? So they're going to be able to do that through my website. The best thing to do right now is to get on my email list um, to stay tuned for that. So if you go to my blog, I actually did um, a post recently, and I can send this to you for the show notes, but it's all about how I self-published the book and kind of the behind the scenes. Um, And there's a link there to sign up um, for my email list, or just it's on my blog too, which is a ducksoven.com. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Bad Coach Podcast. Make sure that you follow Chelsea on Instagram. She's a ducks oven. So it's a ducks oven. She posts a bunch of amazing recipes and you can find the link to buy her cookbook on Amazon. So make sure you give that a click. It's available on Amazon Prime. So you can in two days, right at your doorstep, ready to make some amazing dishes. And then to stay updated with Bad Coach, you can follow me on Instagram. It's at badcoachnyc. If you'd like to learn more about accountability coaching, you can slide into my DMs or send me an email at Chris at badcoachnyc. I am starting to open up submissions for that. So what we will do is set up an initial consultation and from there we can discover what your goals are, kind of like a quick discovery call for you and then go from there. I can release a podcast with more information if that is something that has interest behind it. Uh, But for now, if you are interested in learning more information, send me an email or a DM 
and we can set up some time to talk. Uh, but again, thank you so much for listening. Make sure that you subscribe, share, rate, review. It means the world to me. And nothing is better than sharing the GIF of podcast with a friend. Nothing is better than sitting on the subway in the morning, squeezed in between a million people listening to your favorite podcast. Uh, so have an amazing week and I will talk to you soon. Bye. Thank <laughs> you.